May the words of my heart, or the words of my mouth, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. Amen. In April of 1961, the world sat riveted to the televised trial of Adolf Eichmann taking place in Jerusalem. Journalists from many countries converged upon Jerusalem to cover the trial, which would be the first time the horrors of the Holocaust would be presented in full detail to a jury. These included first-hand accounts from some of the few survivors. More than 100 witnesses were called by the prosecution. This launched the first full documentation of the personal stories of the Holocaust. The trial gave rise to discussions on a great variety of subjects, including social, religious, political, and moral questions. While there were many questions that were interrogated, the primary question those who were watching from around the world had was how could this happen? How were six million Jews, more than a third of the world population of Jews, taken from their homes, placed on trains, brought to concentration camps and work camps and gas chambers? How did the world simply stand by through the rise of the Nazi party and the beginnings of violence and the terror that was brought to so many. The trial of Adolf Eichmann not only brought light to the inaction of the global community, but it brought a particular focus to the individuals who carried out such unspeakable acts. The world wondered, is Adolf Eichmann an evil monster? Was he a mastermind filled with hate? As the four-month-long trial progressed, the defense did not really question the facts related to the events. They didn't challenge the authenticity of the different documents and the stories that were shared. Their singular defense was that Adolf Eichmann was simply a cog in the wheel. He was simply following orders and doing as he was instructed. Of those who gathered to watch the trial, which took place in a converted community center in Jerusalem that was specially prepared for this trial, was a political philosopher and German Jew who had barely escaped a Nazi internment camp, Hannah Arendt. And Hannah Arendt is one of my favorite philosophers, and this moment would be a defining moment for her work. She wound up teaching over the years in places like Princeton and University of Chicago and the New School in New York. And when the trial of Adolf Eichmann uh, came to be known that it was happening, she knew that she wanted to be there. She wanted to see and hear firsthand Uh, some of the ideas that she had been thinking about and writing about in her book on the origins of totalitarianism. So she went to Jerusalem uh, with the support of the New Yorker to write a five-part 
article that would later be turned into a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And she introduced this term, a banality of evil, into our lexicon, calling upon this way of understanding how even an ordinary person can take actions that become so evil and horrific that it's not even, it's not some exceptional quality that drives this, that it's an ordinary person taking action without thought, without relationship, without engagement, without using their own mind and their own imagination, just following along. This is the story that kept coming to my mind this week as I was wrestling with this Mary and Martha text. I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of strange. <laughs> and I'll admit, it was a little odd. Um, but it just kept coming to me, and I kept thinking about this story of Adolf Eichmann and Hannah Arendt's interpretation and how I hear the story of Mary, Martha, and Jesus. So let's dig into the text. This story is well known. Raise your hand if you've heard the Mary, Martha, and Joseph text before. Yep, that's right. We all have. So when I went, I'm a firm believer in following the lectionary, even when I don't particularly like the texts, and see it as a real challenge to um, hear what uh, the Spirit is calling me to. So when I read this that this text was in the lectionary, I thought, oh, this one. <laughs> it's been interpreted in ways that are so troubling to me, and I knew that I didn't want to simply follow the typical path on this text, but I knew that this text had something to say today. This story has been used in popular culture. If you've seen The Handmaid's Tale, you know that the Marthas are the ones who walk around in the green dresses, busily doing all of the work. This has been the story that we will name, I'm a Mary, or I'm a Martha. I'm the one who does all the work in the church, or I'm the one who likes to make sure that we are grounded in prayer and scripture. I'm not so worried about the potlucks and the community gatherings like the Marthas are. We've all heard these tropes of the Marys and the Marthas. It's been interpreted in so many ways that I think that it's important to read it again and to put it in that bigger context of the biblical narrative rather than just pulling out this one story. This story only appears in Luke, and it comes directly after the story of the Good Samaritan, which is an interesting placement. Jesus and his disciples are making their way from Nazareth toward Jerusalem, and it's thought that they were likely near the Sea of Galilee at this time, and at this point they are traveling and regularly relying on the hospitality of those who they come across, and this situation is no exception. They enter the village and they come to the home of Martha. Martha welcomes Jesus and his entourage, and she gets to work with the entertaining 
I know that I've been there, and so many of us have been. I imagine her hustling about, preparing food and drinks, making sure everyone is comfortable, maybe even preparing the places where people will sleep that evening. And all the while, her sister Mary has planted herself near Jesus' feet, and she is listening intently. Martha, irritated that she's doing all of the work, which any of us who has a sibling or is a parent to children who are siblings has heard this argument as Martha asked Jesus to reprimand the sister Mary. And she says, she's just sitting there and I'm doing all the chores. Aren't you going to do something about this? And in this unusual interaction, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Yes, we've all heard this story. But what does it mean? What is this better part that Mary is engaging in? Now, interpretations over the centuries on this text Uh, very dramatically and can be somewhat troubling. One of the most common interpretations exemplified by the 14th century Dominican monk, Meister Eckhart, as well as many other spiritual leaders and biblical interpreters over the, the centuries, including John Wesley, is that Martha is too concerned with worldly matters. And Mary has chosen the superior path, the spiritual path. Eichhardt states that this text shows that there is no higher quality than sanctification and separation from all creatures. Another 17th century commentary says that Jesus gives Martha reproof for her care about the world, and Mary receives commendation for her care about her soul. Calling out the word encumbered, which in Greek properly signifies it to be drawn in different ways at the same time or scattered, he states, care is good and duty, but cumber or being scattered is sin and folly. Martha was then cumbered about much serving when she should have been with her sister sitting at Christ's feet to hear his word. He goes on to say, worldly business is a snare to us when it hinders us from serving God and getting good to our souls. Wesley even closes his, one of his sermons on this text by saying, Mary hath chosen the good part to save her soul. Reader, hast thou Countless interpretations of this text claim that this text shows that the higher path, the more righteous and superior path, is the spiritual path. This plays into this lasting bifurcation between spiritual world and material world. The realm of the spirit is superior, untouchable, pure, even at times seen as unchanging and infallible. While the realm of action, of bodies, of housework is less existentially important 
and more associated with dirt and impurity, blood and desire, and the fickleness of change. This bifurcation is particularly called upon when it comes to women. Women who tend to the spiritual, to purity and sanctity, are seen as superior to those who tend to bodies and dirt. But the thing is, as I was reading these different interpretations and thinking about this, I realized this is why I dislike this text so much. Because I so, one, just fundamentally that makes my stomach go, that's not right. And then when I go back to the biblical text, I think this is so, that interpretation is so at odds with the person of Jesus and with the scriptures and parables and gospel stories about the concerns of Jesus. As I said, I think it's always important to look at the whole of the biblical text when you're interpreting a a scripture. In this text, Immediately before is the story of the Good Samaritan, which begins with a recitation of the Shema, the most holy words that the Jewish people are told to recite when they wake and when they go to bed, to love God and to love their neighbor. To this, Jesus is asked, who then is my neighbor? And we all know that Jesus replies with the story, a story of a man who has been beaten and left for dead. And Jesus replies and says, he's asked then, who is my neighbor? When he tells him that this man has been beaten. And the man who's been left is ignored as a priest and a Levite. Two people who you would think would be well-versed in the spiritual realm walk right by And then a Samaritan, someone who is seen to be spiritually corrupt, is the one who sees the man, who takes action to lift lift him out of the ditch, bring him to shelter, and assure that he will be cared for. Again and again, this is not a unique story. In the gospel text, Jesus is the one who comes in bodily form and cares for people's bodies, not their souls alone. Jesus speaks to feeding and healing and relieving pain and suffering. Care for those in need continually comes before piety or religious law. So is this Mary and Martha text simply an exaltation of spirituality over material and worldly concerns? Or what is it about? What exactly is Mary doing that is held up as a model when the text states, she had her sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. I think too often when we hear Jesus, we think of Jesus as some esoteric, otherworldly, ascetic being. But Jesus was very clear. To sit at the feet of Jesus is to sit at the feet of those who have been cast 
aside. To listen to what Jesus is saying is to listen to the least of these. To listen to those who are hungry or thirsty, or strangers needing clothes, or sick, or in prison. To care for these is to care for Jesus, as stated in Matthew 25. To focus on Jesus, to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to Jesus, is to focus on the least of these. What if this text is not a repudiation of busyness over the spiritual superior path? But what if it is a reminder to center those who are most in need, those who are hurting, those who are crying out, to listen first before we step into the hurried action? To listen to those who are crying out before we engage in hospitality and care. How might that change our reading of this text? Looking back to that Eichmann trial that that just kept coming to me this week, I, I looked at some of the ways that people talked about this trial, and one of those people is uh, Deborah Lipstadt, who's a professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust studies, and she's currently a U.S. ambassador and special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. She writes of the Eichmann trial as a turning point, where we not only came to understand more about the Holocaust, but we came to understand the power of listening to the stories of those who had been hurt and killed and massacred in the acts of genocide. She references a moment in the trial that Hannah Arendt had written about in her text when she highlights a German sergeant named Anton Schmidt who during the trial stood up and told his story as a German soldier who used the forest behind his own house as a place to support the resistors, as a place to provide uniforms and food and shelter because he had met those who had been killed. He had seen with his own eyes the atrocities of the murders that were happening And he decided to take action. He risked his own life to support a resistance in his own home. And Hannah Arendt writes of the way that all of the people who were listening in person to the trial, and then all of those who were watching on this televised trial, watched in silence. As if the darkness had finally seen a crack of light that someone saw, someone heard, someone acted on the atrocities that so many in the world had simply ignored. Hannah Arendt and then Lipstadt wondered what would have happened if people had been able to share their stories of the horror 
And if the world had listened to those stories, what could have happened if people had listened and acted earlier? Lipstadt names that the Eichmann trial, which was spread far and wide on this new medium of television, was the first time that the world community listened in such a concerted effort. And this listening encouraged more people to speak out. And she said, to this day, Anytime there is a war trial, anytime there is a trial of genocide, first-person accounts and narratives and stories are the heart of that trial. And that is the way that you shake people from their complacency, is by telling stories and listening to stories and acting on those stories. Now, please don't hear that I'm comparing Martha to one who thoughtlessly commits genocide. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I am trying to better understand what Jesus is calling us to in this text. I don't think he's calling us to retreat from the messiness of this world to a superior, disconnected, spiritual purity. I do think it's a call to pay attention in our actions, to center and listen to the stories of those who are most affected, those who are most marginalized and harmed in the many atrocities happening in our world today. In a world full of hurting, two and a half years of pandemic, six to 10 years of political division and turmoil, a world where we are overwhelmed by war, gun violence, racism, threats to democracy and freedom, it would be easy to become dizzy with action. Let me tell you, I've been there. And it would be easy to just follow along, to just go through the motions of our lives, to not pay attention to the stories of those who are hurting. We have so much to do. But in this text, in lifting up the better action taken by Mary, Jesus reminds us that our action must center relationships with those who are most vulnerable. Our action must be about listening first to the least of these. And we have a lot of listening to do, don't we? And we have a lot of action to take. I think that is what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus. Amen.